Welcome back to the Present Process Podcast, where we talk about plays from playwrights that you may or may not have heard of and illuminate the process of writing. I'm your host, Daniel, and this week we're talking to Brian James Polak about his play, The Gravediggers Union. As always, if you have a new play exchange profile, I highly recommend you give the play a read before listening. Now, this episode may contain some strong language and other adult themes, so you can find an in-depth content warning in the description. Thanks for listening. Welcome back, everybody. I'm here with Brian James Polak, uh, and we're talking about your play, The Gravediggers Union, today, and I'm really excited to talk to you about it. Yeah, I'm excited, too. Okay, perfect. Uh, so I just wanted to start off. I'm just wondering, who is Brian James Polak? <laughs> who is, like, where where do you come from in the world of theater? What do you typically work with? What do you usually do? And how many different hats do you wear? Right. Well, I've I've worn a few different hats. I'm I consider myself kind of a, a a latecomer in a way, especially to to playwriting. But uh, I'm not somebody who came into theater as a young person. I didn't I didn't do plays when I was a kid, or even in high school and college. I remember I remember being in high school and having some friends who were uh, in the in the choir in school, and the, it was always the choir kids that would do the musicals. And, uh, and I was always very jealous because I can't sing. I can't hold a tune. I couldn't back then. I can't now. And, uh, but I would go see my friends in plays and I would be, uh, you know, on athletic teams. I was on the football team and I was on the track team. And that's kind of what my focus was on. But then when I go to, when I went to college, I wasn't an athlete anymore and I wasn't really focused on anything. Um, so I basically spent my four years of college trying to figure out what it is I want to do uh, and what I am, you know, besides uh, just some guy from New Hampshire. And uh, so shortly after graduating, I kind of had like this with my undergrad degree, I sort of had a, a, an existential crisis. Like, what do I want to do with the rest of my life? I was going to work and coming home and going to work and coming home, but I had nothing else. Uh, I had no hobbies or anything. And uh I had a little bit of kind of a, a, a clownish streak in me. Like I would make my try to make my friends laugh. I would try to do silly things, and uh, I decided to to channel that into acting. So I took an acting class, and uh, it was a Meisner class. And I didn't know I was I didn't know I didn't know what I was getting into. If you know Meisner. You know what I'm talking about. That's a great first class to take as an introduction. It was it was really terrible. <laughs> it was terrible for me because I am a slow learner just in general, and uh, Meisner was just like it was too much for me. Yeah, uh, I I uh, I did it for a good nine months or so, and I met some great people. I made some friends, which is part of what. I wanted was to sort of like not just have like break out of my my circle of friends and meet other people but as from an acting perspective I did not learn anything. I remember doing the repetition exercises and thinking what the whole time like what am I doing? Like is this what actors actually do? All yes, the time? Like this is this is acting. <laughs> I remember I remember at one point I I, I have very few specific memories from this class but one of the memories was the 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 teacher was having us do some uh repetition and uh i was trying to create a character while i was doing the repetition and i remember like like smacking my my gums a little bit like running my teeth my tongue along my teeth like i was cleaning my teeth and he was like why are you doing that and i was like because my character's got something stuck in his teeth and my teacher goes, do you have anything stuck in your teeth? And I said, no. And he's like, then neither does your character. Cut it out. <laughs> and I was like, okay. <sighs> okay. So, so anyway, like I wasn't long for that world. And I moved, uh, I was living in Washington, D.C., where I went to undergrad at, uh, at the time. And I, was, I moved to Boston, uh, which was kind of my home city. I grew up in New Hampshire, and Boston's kind of the home city if you, if you – uh, grew up in New Hampshire and I always wanted to live there. So I, I picked up and moved to Boston and I asked my acting teacher if he knew anybody up there uh, that taught acting. And he said, no, you should take improv though. Mm. And 
and I had never, I think I maybe knew of what improv was. I think I had a basic understanding, uh, but I didn't really have a grasp of it. That's for sure. So I was like, fine. I moved to Boston. I find this improv theater. I get into their training program, which was uh, very, you know, focused. It had, you know, like many other performing, like theater, improv performing theaters, it had six levels. Mm-hmm. And I just went through all the six levels and I kind of took to it to some extent. And uh, after I graduated, uh, I was, ca- I auditioned and I got cast in their, in this theater's um, like B team, like their second, their second performance group. They had like the main stage and the second group. And I was like, so I had like a day job, you know, I was working corporate job nine to five. And then I would do this improv thing on the side. And I did it for a couple of years and, and performing improv for a couple of years really revealed to me what I'm capable of and what I'm not capable of. And, uh, I, I was an okay performer, but I wasn't a great performer. I wasn't somebody that could take the stage, command the stage and, and, uh, really catch the audience's attention and make them laugh. I'm a great support person. And, uh, they were making, I was there for a couple of years. They were making everybody in the cast re-audition for their roles, which I kind of understood as we're cutting some people. <laughs> and so I cut myself, I quit. And uh, and then I did, for, I spent a few years doing some regular theater, like performing in some plays. And, uh, and in these, so through this whole period, I'm in my 20s and I'm doing this improv and I'm doing this theater. And what I'm really learning is what I'm not particularly good at. I'm not a I'm not a naturally talented actor, but what I loved was uh, the theater. I loved it. I loved the improv theater. I loved the the, the traditional theater. I love being uh, in a collaborative group to make a thing and, and present a thing to a live audience. Like that was very exciting to me. And I actually connected back to the sports teams I was in in high school. Like I wasn't a great athlete, but I loved being part of the team. I loved being amongst a group of people trying to accomplish a thing. But but I had to find my place in it, and and uh, and I started to write. And when I started to write, I was like, "Oh, okay, I think this might be the thing." And uh, what's really cool about when you start to write, uh, you can find a lot of opportunities for like short plays. Uh, and I'm not sure if it's really the case today, but when I started writing, when I started playwriting, there were all of these opportunities for 10 minute plays, like little 10 minute play festivals all over the place. And so I was writing these plays, I was sending them out, I was getting them accepted and it felt good. And I felt like, uh, I had aptitude for it. So like I both enjoyed it and felt like it was, it was right for me. And that's sort of how I got into, uh, playwriting, the circuitous route. Um, but I wasn't, it, it wasn't until I was really in my early thirties that I started to, to write plays, but I'm in it now. <laughs> but yeah, you found your way there. Like, I, I appreciate what you said about like when you find something that you're, you know, that you're kind of good at and that also feels good to do like, so yeah. that, and then you feel comfortable honing that. Cause you're like, well, now I can spend a, more time doing this. Cause I'm not like torturing myself trying to get better at it and i think like i like i've had moments like that i think everybody in theater has moments like that where like somebody's like oh i have to be an actor and then they hang out in the costume shop for a little bit they're like wow this is actually really cool like yeah yeah so i really appreciate that i i had a similar experience coming around to dramaturgy where i like slowly realized that i was like man i really really like reading plays and a lot of actors don't really like reading lots of plays. Yeah. Something's off, but that's cool. Yeah. yeah. I like, the, I like the, I, I carry with me. And when I talk to uh, younger people or students of mine, I carry with me this memory of, and you kind of just said it, like I wanted to be an actor, but it wasn't being an actor that I wanted is. And that's the thing I discovered. Mm-hmm. It was the thing that being an actor was bringing me, which was um, making art collaboratively in a group. And, uh, that's ultimately what I found myself doing just not as an actor anymore. And I, and I think if you leave yourself open to that kind of discovery, then you'll find something that satisfies you. It's like, we like, and you may, you may bump into this as a dramaturg. Like we talk about characters that want something 
and they're going after the thing they want and what they ultimately get is the thing they need and they just never realized right. it all along. And that's sort of how, how, that's what the beginning of my journey was, going after the thing I wanted and then stumbling on the thing that I actually needed. Yeah. Uh, so now you're, um, now you're focusing on playwriting. What sort of, like in your immediate world, what sort of work do you do in theater mostly? So, so when I started, I had just moved to Los Angeles uh, from Boston and uh, to explore being a film and television writer. But what happened was um, I got a full-time job at a theater in Los Angeles. Uh, and it was a theater that focused on new works. So I was like a baby playwright and I got a full-time job at a new play theater. And I um, shortly after just kind of stopped really caring about film and television. And I just really got into writing plays and I was learning about writing plays while watching the sausage being made. So I was watching like these new plays and these playwrights come into the theater and get their work produced. And, uh, and I was learning so much. So I was really learning about the production process while I was learning how to write a play at the same time. Uh, and I, so I was there for a decade at this theater. And during this decade, you know, I was, I was honing my craft, but I decided I wanted to go to grad school as well. So I went to USC uh, to get my MFA in dramatic writing. And I kept working at the theater at the same time. So uh, I really had like this, I don't know, three-dimensional education in, in the theater from mm -hmm. producing administration, production, and uh, writing all kind of all at the same time. And, uh, and it was pretty thrilling. Uh, I, so after, after a decade of that, uh, I ended up moving to Chicago and got a job running a theater. So then I was artistic directing and production managing and producing and administrating um, a theater. For, and I did that for a couple of years. So I, so my, I identify as a playwright, but throughout all of, all of these years, I've done so many things in the theater world. And so currently uh, we mentioned before we hit record, I mentioned before we hit record that I also, uh, I host and produce a podcast called the subtext for American theater magazine, uh, which I've been doing for several years now. And every episode of that podcast is, uh, and a conversation that's roughly an hour long with with a playwright, and some of the play, some playwrights I talk to are are very well known, uh, and we we see and read their plays all the time. And a lot of the playwrights I talk to are not nationally known, um, but I just love to have these conversations with them, capture their story, and share it and share it with the world. So so currently, the two hats I wear are uh, playwright and podcaster. Wow, like that. Oh my God, you've read the like the whole gamut for yeah. theater roles like that. That is really impressive. I, yeah, for sure. That's just really cool. I mean, I I I wouldn't mind doing something like that. Like, I think that seems like a a pretty fortunate gig to have because right, you get to you oh were, yeah, you were like lined up for all of the different experiences, so you figured it out. You got to taste every aspect of the giant theater cake that's going on here. Oh, and and actually, one of the great things I had access to uh, was the process of uh, season planning. Mm -hmm. So I got to watch the artistic team season plan. I wasn't part of it. I wasn't. I wasn't in there making decisions with them. But the theater was small enough where uh, I had access. I sat in the artistic director's office all the time and had conversations about the plays, and we'd have readings of plays and we'd talk about them and. And, uh, and it was really fascinating and has been super helpful for me as a playwright, understanding that when my play is being considered by a theater, uh, if it gets rejected, which is most of the time, it's, it's quite often and maybe even most of the time that it's being rejected not because of anything qualitative. It's really about so many other things like size of the cast or similar tone and structure, or they did a play just like it a year or two earlier. Like all, there are all kinds of different um, mm -hmm. elements that go into it. And so 
it has helped me a lot sort of wrap my my head around uh rejection yeah that's i totally feel that like when we started getting submissions for this it was we got a whole bunch of great great stuff and i was like man i really want to like engage this uplift it right and yeah try and spread it around because it's not for us right now that's like yeah. the problem is i would i'd love to put this on a shelf and maybe come back to it sometime but it, there was a lot of great work that got submitted that i just had to pass on and it's um it's a shame really because there's a lot of great playwriting that gets done and sometimes it's just hard to find it yeah you're so you're so right like what what I didn't realize for a long time is just the sheer volume of writers, playwrights in general, but also just there, there are so many great plays that are written every year that never see the light of day. And it has nothing to do with, with quality or the playwright's ability. It is so much just about luck of the draw, right play at the right time, getting your play in front of the, 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 the eyeballs that can really help you. Uh, and, uh, sometimes it's about access. It's just about so many factors that are beyond just your ability to write a great play. And it's astounding to me how many, how many great plays I run into, uh, every month almost because I'm, I'm always reading new plays too. And it's like, it's mind blowing. Mm -hmm. And it's like, even with that, then I go back and I read collections from dead playwrights. Right, and then yeah. it's like the ones that never get produced. And I read it, I go, wow, this place like really good. I wonder why we just like skip over it. Yeah. But it's just because it got, it just gets passed over. There's like so much that's going on all the time. It's not all um, going to be like the big blockbuster, like, oh my gosh, this play is exploded in popularity. It's just, that's just so up to chance. I mean, but you do got to write the good play first, but there's right still yeah hundreds, hundreds and thousands of good plays out there yeah all right so let's let's talk about your play the gravediggers union uh yes so we got a crew a ragtag crew of gravediggers uh working at a gravesite that's being challenged by uh basically the walmart of graveyards going in across the street uh, was there like a personal or global event in your life that sort of inspired this idea to come to you at all? There certainly wasn't a uh, a specific global event, but displacement because of corporate culture and corporate takeover and capitalism is certainly not uh, uh, foreign to us in the United States. Um, what 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 launched this play for me was a desire to write something that was a comedy because uh you know my as i said before my my sort of like uh roots in the performing arts was through comedy i was a you know an improv comedy actor for for a while and and um i think in terms of comedy like i live uh day to day and i'm thinking of funny things uh like at work or at home and I'm cracking jokes left and right. But when I was getting into my writing, my writing was always dramatic and there's, you know, there are comedic elements in a lot of my plays, but you would never uh, confuse any of my plays for a comedy. And, uh, and I just wanted to write a comedy because I wanted to live in something that was a little bit uh, lighter. So I just started to think about what my comedy would be. And uh, being from New Hampshire, uh, you know, I set many of my plays in in my home state. And, uh, and I just started to think about the sort of geography of my home. And, and I decided I had written another play based in my hometown called Welcome to Keene, New Hampshire. And Keene, New Hampshire is a real is a real place. And then I was thinking about the surrounding towns of Keene. And uh, I was going to set the play in a real in one of the real towns, but uh, because the the reality in the play itself is is not <laughs> the world is not grounded in reality is what yeah. I'll say. Um, I decided to fictionalize the name of the town, and I took a couple towns, a couple real towns that are near Keene, and I sort of smashed them together to create Ashworth and set. Uh, a cemetery there. And what I intentionally didn't do, I did not 
research what it's like to actually work in a cemetery <laughs> because I wanted to I wanted to make it my own and uh, I didn't want and this is the opposite like normally I would then immerse myself in the world uh, of of the, the play and the themes and for this one I did no research whatsoever everything was from my mind um, for better or for worse um, and I just wanted, I just wanted to have fun with it. And I wanted to, I wanted to, you know, make jokes that made me laugh. So every joke in the play makes me laugh and whether it makes anybody else laugh, you just never know because comedy is so subjective. I was like, if I, as long as I'm laughing, I'm, I'm happy. Uh, so that's really what got me to the play and this, the, the, the concept of having the Walmart of cemeteries move in <laughs> across the street was because I was just like, okay, what's the crisis for these <laughs> folks who are working, you know, essentially nine to five jobs at a cemetery, what could disrupt their lives? And uh, so, you know, the setup is there, there was a, a golf course across the street and uh, this major cemetery conglomerate bought it and put in this shiny new uh, cemetery with all the bells and whistles that would go along with it. And, and so that disrupts, that disrupts their lives. I'm trying to think of what I've, I read it in. I think it might've been a playwriting book, but I don't remember which one, but he was, it was basically like set challenges for yourself and that'll help you come up with new ideas, which is basically kind of what you did is you were like, well, I haven't written a comedy, like a straight comedy before. Uh, I'm just going to try it. And then I think, I think because you're doing that, right. You get yourself out of your writer holes and then it forces yeah. you to think differently. And so it yeah. gives you, it, it gives you new ideas because you have to think differently. For sure. Yeah. And, and actually I gave myself a second challenge in writing this play. And that was in creating a cast that could be performed by any actor, regardless of, gender orientation um race i wrote i wrote zero pronouns into the play um nobody is referred to by a pronoun nobody is referred to by uh a specific gender or sexuality um i really wanted to make i wanted to make what is kind of uh, a straightforward play structurally speaking like it's not doing anything fancy uh, but I wanted it to have as open casting as uh, I could possibly make it. So that was like my, that was my second challenge in writing it. Well, and I think that leads to it's sort of, it has sort of an Americana feel to me a little bit. Like, like, yeah, it's, it's funny. It's, it's a, a little absurdist. Um, it's got lots of heart, but it's also very like, this feels like a slice of American life, like mm. in a, like a, in a, in a small towny sort of way, like in a, this is sort of what it's like to live here is like, there's like a lack of global severity to it. Cause like these characters right. problems are so immediate to them. Yeah. It's not like they're being affected. Yeah. There's the big corporation coming in, but it's like, they're really, really focused on what each other are doing. And there's not uh you don't get a sense that there's like a massive bigger world or like a war going on in the distance. And I really appreciated that. I think it's sometimes those are hard to find because I think when people start to want to have a message in a play like that, then it becomes big and be like, it sets itself somewhere. Yeah. I've tried in a lot of my plays to avoid specific cultural references. And uh, I avoid for the most part reliances on technology for the characters because I like the idea that uh, this can be th thought of as timeless. Perhaps the one thing in the Gravediggers Union that I did that kind of grounds it in our era is there is a podcaster in the, uh, in the mix. And uh, I'm not sure where that came from. Uh, I know the, <laughs> I, I know where a lot of it came from is that I, I, uh, I listened to the podcast, s-town mm -hmm. uh, if you ever listen to s-town yeah. that is for me the greatest podcast i've ever i've listened to it three times and i'm not done listening to like i'm gonna listen to it again i listen to when i take long road trips 
Um, I find it, I find it brilliant and hilarious and inspiring. And it has inspired uh, aspects of the podcast character in the play. Uh, some of the, some of their dialogue when they're recording their podcast introductions, I was literally like listening to the, the, uh, the narrator of S town, the creator of S town and how he described things. And I, uh, I wasn't cribbing it, but it was like the feeling that it, that what he was saying was giving me is the feeling that I was using to infuse the podcast characters dialogue. It also did remind me of uh, like, I imagine like the piano intro from like serial it was and it's it, it's like right like the uh, like there's plenty of haha jokes in here but a lot of them i feel like are very uh circumstantial and sort of uh about like recognition like the like i think the characters here are yeah again like we said they're absurd they're um kind of strange but they're also like super relatable and recognizable like i feel Mm -hmm. like i know all of these characters from people that i've met in my life before and so i think the comedy really comes through that is like like the town sort of feels lived in in that way yeah yeah thank you i think i think i originally thought of having a podcaster because uh i wasn't sure if an uh, a reader or an audience member for this play would have an access point to these characters. So the podcaster was the audience mm-hmm. was the person doing like uh, sociological re- or anthropological <laughs> research, observing these, these people. Uh, and so if you aren't connecting with Ronnie or Bobby, you, you have, you have the, that podcaster to who is observing on your behalf, basically. It was a little bit of like a, like a straight man who's like, yeah like what like what is going on here like why are you like kind of being so laissez-faire about these graves right now like right yeah it's yeah i love it i honestly i just have to say i love i love drumming like i wish that's the thing i wish i could be (laughs) yeah same here same here so maybe i'd be completely biased but when when you have this character that's like so passionate about drumming that to me was like super super endearing and I think it makes for really, really great theatrical stage business. Like that's just a win, right? Like, and I, I love that. I love that you had that in there. Yeah. So that come like there are a couple places that comes from. One, I, I'm not a musician, and I have less than zero musical ability, but I'm obsessed with music in my plays, and um, the majority of my plays have an instrument being played or song and songs. Um, Etc. Despite the fact that I can't create these myself, um, so that's where the dr- partially where the drum comes from. The character, uh, which is Mike, yep. is the dr- Mike is the drummer, and uh, Mike is based on uh, somebody I used to work with years ago. Who uh, it was like a you know kind of an office job, and he was the nicest guy in the world. Uh, he never took vacations ever and the company we worked for didn't have a cap on vacation days. <laughs> uh, and so he collected like a hundred vacation days. It was like an astounding number of vacation days that he told us one day how many days he had. Cause he had like, I worked at this place for only like a year. He had already been there for many years and he was just banking the, these days cause he had nothing to do. And his side gig was drumming in a, in a wedding band. So on Mondays, he'd come in and he'd talk about the gig he did over the weekend. And he was so into it. He was just, it was just like he, he had so much genuine enthusiasm for the drumming and, and his side gig. And uh, on the surface, it kind of felt a little, at first, a little annoying. Like, take it easy you know, uh, but it was actually very endearing. Um, and his song, uh, that he always got to do, that was his, his special song was, uh, was called black velvet by Alana miles. I think something Alana, I think Alana something, 
uh, the song is called Black Velvet. And he would be like, I got to play and sing that song. And he would be so excited when he got to do that. Um, but when I wrote this play, I decided to choose Pour Some Sugar on Me by Def Leppard as uh, that character's song that he's obsessed or that they are obsessed with. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, because the lyrics are just so silly. <laughs> And I like, I just wanted, to, like, I wanted to hear this character say lyrics to a song that means a lot to him and have the lyrics be just bonkers. And that song was kind of ubiquitous in my childhood. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and obviously, and the drummer to that band only has one arm because he got into a car accident. Um, so that all, all of that inspired like the opening scene where Mike is talking about this, this song and describing it to uh, the podcaster character who he doesn't know as a podcaster. He just thinks is a new hire at the cemetery. Right. Well, but anyway, that- the, the point, sorry, the point, my point that I tried to make that I didn't make uh, is that I am constantly excavating real life people and situations I've lived in and memories and infusing them into my plays. And that's, that's why, that's how that drummer character came to be. I mean, now that you say that, it makes me go, Oh yeah. Like, right. That's why these characters feel so real. It's because they are right. (laughs) These characters do actually exist somewhere. Um, And I mean, you talking about pour some sugar on me leads me to the, the divorce ceremony scene, right? which is such a good, that's, it's like, that's a great comedic premise because you're just completely turning something on its head. So now you're like, now I have, because you're flipping the expectations for right. A wedding scene. Now you have, okay, here's a whole bunch of jokes I can do just because it's reversed now. And those will be great. Um, did you have a specific spot where you came up with that scene? Like, did you have a specific moment of inspiration or did it just seem like the right thing to do at the time? It came when I, when I realized that the, so the setup is there's essentially almost, almost there's like a quasi love triangle. There's Ronnie, Bobby, and Ricky, Mm -hmm. Ronnie and Bobby were married and have are divorced now. Uh, now Bobby and Ricky are are married, and uh, miserably, it's not a good marriage. But Bobby refuses to get a divorce just to spite <laughs> Ronnie. Uh, and so when I realized that that was when I stumbled on that setup, I was like, okay, so that's like one of those you know minor tensions in the play, like. Will they or won't they get it? Will Bobby grant the divorce or not grant the divorce? I I have been through a divorce myself and it is excruciating. It's a terrible experience, even when uh, you don't have children and you, you don't own a lot of stuff and it's somewhat amicable where you both are in agreement that this used to happen. It's still so excruciating. So, so, I didn't like I'm writing a comedy here and I'm stumbling on a moment that needs to happen, which is a divorce and which can bring a lot of sadness. And um, I didn't want it to be a sad moment. I wanted it to be a happy moment because I actually think ultimately a divorce is a happy moment. It just takes a while to get to happiness. Um, But I want, so I just like you, like you were describing, I flipped it. And I made the divorce like a wedding ceremony where there's somebody overseeing it. And then there are the two people. Do you grant divorce to you, to them? Do you grant divorce to them? I do. I do. And then there's a moment where uh, like, like at a lot of weddings, somebody will get up and like do a reading or, or make a speech. (laughs) And that's when Mike stands up and reads the lyrics to pour some sugar on me as if they are poetry. And does all and of them too. Literally all of them doesn't, <laughs> doesn't crack a smile. Doesn't do it. Like the character's not doing it for a joke. And when I thought of that, I was, what I was thinking of was there's this uh, cartoon called family guy, which a lot of people might know. A lot of people might not know it, but 
um, I call it a family guy joke because family guy will often take something and run the joke so long that it stops being funny and then continues. And then the comedy comes back around again and it is funny again. And that's what I decided this moment will be that if, uh, if it gets produced, the audience uh, will recognize what this character is doing. will laugh at first and then, and then question, wait, how long is this going to go? And then eventually laugh at the absurdity once they realize that it's going all the way to the absolute <laughs> end. Um, and so that, that scene, including the, the reading of the lyrics of the song, I think is one of my proudest <laughs> moments as a writer. Like I just, it makes me laugh so much. Uh, and I just, I, I really, I remember writing it. I just, I, I had so much fun writing it. So does this does this play have a like a like a development history with like readings and table reads or anything like that? I've done I've done one reading of it uh, in front of an audience, and uh, that's really it's a development history. Like I wrote it and then had a reading. I wrote it as part of a, a writers group that I was in at the time, uh, and so it, it was part of a writing challenge where we wrote a new play over the course of a month, and then a couple months later presented our new plays to audiences. And uh, yeah, so that's really, it It had like maybe like a couple hours of rehearsal, not much rehearsal. And then the reading and I could not wait. (laughs) I could not wait for the divorce scene. And I, I just, it, it, it somewhat worked too. Like I think people got it because I think I had maybe 25 people in the audience for the reading. And I think I got the appropriate role of laughter. Like, Right. laughter and then silence and in the silence is when i'm laughing because i'm <laughs> like ah, it's i'm like ah, it's happening it's happening <laughs> uh, and then uh and then and then the laughter coming back and i was just like i don't care what happens the rest of the play yeah like, I'm, I'm good i think and i might be wrong here um and maybe i often am but i sort of have this theory running with like the new absurd if you if you want to it's like i think there were a lot of plays I think are now kind of returning to that absurdism. Cause like at the end of your play, nothing has really changed all that much. <laughs> like, cause all the characters are still kind of there. A divorce has happened, but really they're all still going to continue working at the, at the graveyard. There's, there's no really big change that happened with that other one coming in, but at the same time, it's still very hopeful. Like, right. It's, it's still very ha- like, I don't want to say a happy ending, but it's like, it, there's a lot of, you feel like things are going to continue to go fine for these characters. And to me, that's kind of like this new absurdist trend is that, yeah, things are kind of repetitive and stay the same and nothing really changes, but at least life is still good generally. Yeah. yeah, I kind of pull a trick a little bit at the end of this one, because I set up this one character as, uh, (laughs) you know, really, really wanting and needing to get away and and then you see that they're gone and then the fi- like so you think some you think something has changed you think right. the world has been disrupted in this one character like uh, and as if you've seen if you've seen or read the play you know that i'm very intentionally leaning into chekhov mm-hmm. uh, because there is a moment where there's a play within the play where it is uh three sisters <laughs> and this one so this one character in the play wants to get to Moscow. Moscow in my play is Boston. And uh, you think that they went, <laughs> which just like in Three Sisters, the Three Sisters don't go to Moscow. <laughs> yeah. And and that's that's how you know the, the final reveal in the play is uh, he didn't go to Boston. <laughs> Every, all the other characters think he did, but he did not. He They did not. He, she, they did not. Yeah. Oh, and I... Uh, I think I, I run into a lot of problems where sometimes with cynical plays where I go, man, I really like, yeah, that was a good play, but it it's like, I don't, it's not that I'm going to the theater for escapism, but I think at the same time, I want to know that there's like something still good to be had, even if the play ends poorly. And I think that's what I really appreciate with yours. And I think I get that the most with the Ralph moment is that, mm. 
like where you go, oh, this is he gets one moment when he comes on. It could be anybody like it could be it's a different person every night. I love that idea. And he's like, no, I actually really appreciate these people. And that's why I have them around. Like, yeah, yeah. So for for context, the this character, Ralph, is like the manager owner of the cemetery. <laughs> Again, I didn't do any research. I didn't want to know that that's not a, really a thing. But uh, they talk about Ralph so much. Um, and you re- like it's kind of a joke that you ca- you come to realize as an audience member after a long period of time that this character is not going to appear in the play. And then uh, I wrote it as a walk-on role that Ralph has one monologue and I write in the script that anybody could perform it. I could perform it if I happen to be in the house that night, right? You could do it. They could have a friend, a, a board member, anyone could just like grab the script, come out on stage and read this monologue as, as Ralph. Um, but so, yeah, it's like two, it's like a twofold moment. One, it's a surprise to what Ralph is saying is actually supposed to be revelatory and, you know, um, a little, a little surprising mm-hmm. in that he doesn't see things the same way that they do, but he's aware, he's sort of aware of how everybody sees, sees them. Oh, well, I, uh, I'm just sort of curious in general, cause you talked about how this is different from plays you've written before. What sort of work did you do before this? And how do you think that it's sort of like, right, you're taking a departure with this one, but what sort of skills did you learn from those earlier projects that might've been different and brought them to this one? Well, it's, it's easier for me to say where, what's kind of the same, mm-hmm. uh, and it's start from there. I, I don't enjoy writing toxic characters and I don't enjoy writing toxic relationships. That isn't to say that there isn't conflict. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there's always conflict in my plays and it's, it's oftentimes people that are, are, are trying to be better. What I dis- what I'm doing differently in this play is I think in my, in my other plays and my plays that are more straightforward, dramatic works, I'm thinking moment to moment in those plays in terms of what feels real, honest, and authentic in a given moment. Uh, Like the actions that the characters take, the things that they say, I think in terms of like authenticity and honesty and, and and just being real in the context of the world that I created. In the Gravediggers Union, I'm trying to be authentic and honest but I want the choice to be more surprising and maybe lead to laughter in some way. So I'm really just, I'm, I'm kind of going down the same roads, but uh, taking a little detour off of the path uh, that will just maybe lead to a chuckle or a smile in the, in the audience. And I, I, think, I think it's sort of this idea of, uh, of like being re- grounded and real and authentic and honest is, is what I try to have throughout everything that I write. Like I, I, I don't have a, I don't have many, if any, probably none, pure, uh, evil, impure, good characters. Oftentimes, the harm being done to a character is being done to themselves. My characters are often their own worst enemies. Yeah, I, I think I like I again I see that in the work where it's like they do feel so real like and they're and they're not pretty or perfect in in either way right it's almost like i feel like your work might be less toxic because you said you don't like writing toxic characters which is true it's like the you're like the you're on this you're in you're writing similar stories to like neil labute but your characters aren't like the most they're not all vicious people, right? Like, mm. and that's the fun of Neil Labute, right? Is that you have all of these characters that are just bad people and you throw them together and they right. like fight. But I think yours are, have the the heart part, right? Where you can have these heartfelt moments and Neil Labute gets those, but it's, it's I find it, it's more about like the, the butting of heads and like, it's just two rams just like slamming against each other most of the time, which is fun to watch. I really like that from yours. 
Yeah, I I don't I personally don't feel comfortable in those moments uh, in my life. Right. Like I I I, I avoid conflict uh, in real life and uh, and I confrontation really uh, conflict is unavoidable. Confrontation is what is avoidable, and confrontation is what I I avoid as much as possible. <laughs> and and so when I'm writing, uh, I really try to. Uh, I don't know, avoid that. But if it like, I have a play that's sort of like a father son conflict um, and it's a little bit darker uh, and it's more like, like, uh, like a shepherd play, uh, but more, but anyway, like I, it's, 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 it's silly to even say that because his, his work is just genius. So <laughs> like, I'm not saying that's where I am, but that's really what the play is. And so this, these two characters have to butt heads. They have to go after each other. And that's just the way it has to work. And, and I, I still write that. I write that play knowing that this is uncomfortable for me, but knowing that I have to do it, but I have to, I have to lead them to uh, a real honest moment of, of catharsis that made that confrontation um, understandable. Mm -hmm. I'm sort of curious when you were doing that, because you said you wrote this in like a, like a writer's group sort of situation. What was that process like? Like what process did you use to actually get the words on the page? Like what was the structure of the group like? Well, it was actually, a, it was a challenge uh, to write a play in the month of February, the shortest month of the year. <laughs> and uh, I was in a writer's group in Los Angeles for several years called the Playwrights Union. And the playwright, Jen Haley, who wrote the, if you know the nether, she's the author of the mm -hmm. nether, which is just one of the best plays I've ever seen. She started this writer, she started the Playwrights Union and um, a tradition in the Playwrights Union is to write a play in the month of February. And then at the end of the month, everybody who wrote one gets together and reads and spends a couple days over a weekend reading each other's work. Um, and I, when I moved to Chicago and I found myself in, an, in another writer's group, I brought that same challenge to that writer's group. And uh, a handful of us in this group decided we're just going to uh, write, go off on our own for the month of February and, and write. So it's the intention is uh, for it to be a sprint mm -hmm. and you just, you just get it out uh, as fast as you can, because you, you've got 28 days, you know, to write a full length play. And so, you know, I did that for several years in LA with the Playwrights Union, and I did it a couple times um, with this writers group in Chicago, and I still do it on my own. Mm -hmm. So, the way the reason it kind of works for me is because I'm a I'm always aware that February is is coming, and I do a lot of work in my head in preparation for February, and oftentimes when I've done when I've done it successfully, where I've actually started February 1st and was done with the first draft by February 28th, it, I have spent months in my head with this, with this play. And that's what happened with the Gravediggers Union. I started thinking about it, you know, six to nine months earlier. And what, and I'm not even writing notes down, really. I'm just thinking in my head, the, the basic setup, the essential cast, uh, are the the essential you know cast of characters, um, and the tone, and I and I just keep thinking on these things, and sometimes a really specific moment might come to me, like maybe the 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 pour some sugar on me thing might pop into my head, and I'll I'll note mm -hmm. that, but really I've just like in my quiet moments where I'm driving the car, falling asleep at night, I'm thinking on this for months, and then February first hits and. I just start letting it come out and I'm writing essentially from beginning to the end. I'm just writing it straight from moment to moment to moment until end of play on the final page. And it feels so great. Like I think I've successfully done this in February, like five or six times where I've, where I've really started and finished. And, and then I've been unsuccessful a couple of times, um, but still have gone on to finish the new play. 
Uh, and I'm doing it right now. Like I have a play in my head that I've not written anything about. I'm holding it for, for February. I'm working on other projects. Mm -hmm. And when February 1st hits, I'm going to start this new piece that I've been thinking about f so far for probably about six months. I'm trying to remember who there's a, there's a, oh, a playwright from like the, like a 20th century playwright who had that, had a similar process and they called it being with play, like he was pregnant. And so ah. like he would germinate on an idea in his head for like months on end, like you're talking about. And yeah. then just like <laughs> give birth to the play basically. Yeah. Like I, I, I do that sometimes myself where like, I'll just, I'll do, I'll work on scenes in my head before I actually write them down. Um, and so I think, I think there's definitely something to that, or even just the fact that you're like anticipating February. It, I feel like it's such a motivator to have that in your head. Cause there's, there's February looming in the distance. So you just got to keep yeah. thinking about it. Yeah. And I mean, I, I really love it because I'm able to, I'm able to work on multiple projects at the same time because of something like this, because it's multiple projects that are at very different stages of creation. And um, I'm always able to hold space for something new because I'm not sitting on my computer writing anything down. Mm -hmm. When I'm at my computer writing something, it's revising another play or whatever. Um, and then, and then, but then when February comes, this is the only project that I'll work on for the entire entire month and it's such a great it's such a great feeling to like you said give birth to it like yeah. it's like to get it out finally right because then you're not you're not holding it in anymore and it's finally like you have a you're like it's there right i don't need to i can still think about it but it's not i'm not like holding it in my head right 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 yeah uh, what do you, so like when you're actually in that writing moment, like obviously you're focusing on getting things out onto the page, but is there like something particular about scripts that you like to focus on that you like to remember while you're writing? It, it's different from script to script. I, I honestly leave as much room for discovery as possible. You know, like I mentioned earlier, my, um, my roots in, in improv have never left me and it's a huge huge tool it's not even a tool it's just part of who i am and how i think and how my brain works like yes and is is literally part of my my everyday life and absolutely when i'm in a script i might have a general sense of uh the plot and the story but scene to scene moment to moment characters in conversation like things change and, and things happen because, you know, the, the the essential idea of yes and is something gets presented to you and you accept it and you add to it. And my brain very much works where I will uh, hear somebody say a word and it will trigger some memory or some thought or some joke. And, and I, it's, and sometimes it'll be a, sound like a non sequitur to a, a person if I say it out loud, but uh that's just how it works. And when I'm sitting there in the script, my, my brain is absolutely functioning in that way. Well, and it feels like uh, you're sort of talking about like script writing is just sort of improvising by yourself a little bit. Like, yeah, right? like yeah. you just right. you're playing all the characters at once. Like you kind of have to uh, like, yeah. not that you want to edit while you write, but like Matt, like you're going, okay, this, I have to respond as this character, right? Not fashion the scene as a whole. Right, right. Well, you're always thinking in context, right? The context of this character, the context of this moment, the context of the world that I've built, and then improvising within that within that context. Mm -hmm. This might sound like a loaded question, uh, and it is sort of like on purpose, but I'm sure. sort of wondering, like when it comes to when you're focusing on writing, are you focusing more on like the plot or the uh, plot and the events or the characters that you're building like when you're obviously they're both important you can't like really have plays that don't have one or the other are you looking for specific like hitting s specific moments or really fleshing out these characters first it's character for me so i might have designs on what the plot's gonna be uh i will blow up the plot if it feels true to the character if the character is call if if I'm if I'm hearing something else in the characters, 
uh, I'm, or if I'm realizing, like I said earlier, I try to keep my mind as open to discovery as, as possible. And this is like, sometimes what happens with discovery, you realize that decisions you made earlier, uh, you need to change. It's because you didn't have as much information as you do now. Like when I came up with the plot, I didn't, I didn't know these characters as well as I know them now. And so uh, a lot gets revealed and that's why I will not, that's why I, I will deviate from the plot and often still navigate to the same end point uh, that I had designs on originally. But uh, I for sure will listen and defer to the character. Yeah. It's like, uh, I always, I'm, I'm really kind of curious about this because I think sometimes audience members are also more focused on one or the other. Mm. Um so sometimes when I'm like talking to people and they say, Oh, I didn't really like this um, play because uh, it didn't really like the characters really didn't seem real to me. It's like, Oh, well maybe they're a character. Like they're more interested in watching characters. And so like, do you feel like you, when you go and see theater, do you like watching characters more or are you like more invested in plot or do you kind of. Yeah, I think, I think it, I think it really depends. Um, two things I'll say to this. One is Marsh, the playwright, Marsha Norman, I'm going to completely like brutalize the, the advice she gives, yeah. but she is, she essentially says, if you're getting on a plane that's traveling to Buffalo, the plane eventually has to land in Buffalo. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's how I see plot. Uh, the plane might be diverted. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, but it's got to get, it's got to get somewhere. And I th- and I feel that uh, quite a bit. However, there is a do you know? I don't know if you know the playwright uh, Charles Mee. He writes. He wrote this play called Bob Rauschenberg America in collaboration with Ann Bogart and City Company. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this was like twenty years ago. And uh, he doesn't write in terms of uh, a plot or a story. It's a lot of cutting pieces, finding pieces from older works and the Greeks and newspapers and and then listening to the cast in rehearsal and creating um, alongside a cast and like mashing things together. Uh, and his his work is beautiful. So I saw a production of Bob Rauschenberg America with the city company um, years and years ago and that play has no plot. That play is not traveling to Buffalo. That play is going everywhere and nowhere at the same time. And, uh, and I find it to be such a beautiful and moving work that is inspired by the, the, the artist, Robert Rauschenberg. Um, and it, you know, it's titled Bob Rauschenberg America. And it is, it was staged kind of on like a American flag that was painted on the floor and on the backdrop of the, of the stage. And uh, it, like you used the word Americana earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is very much what this play is. So by the end of the, by the end of Bob Rauschenberg America, you have a feeling like you've experienced something. You have a feeling about the world. You didn't see a story. You didn't see a narrative story. You saw a lot of disparate scenes happen one after another and some little threads that continue throughout um like the theme of love and the theme of america and but it doesn't have a plot and i find i find that to be beautiful and i would go see that a hundred times i still like plays with plot you know so so it just it just it just really depends on how well i need something like right i when when i can't intellectually understand the story i need to emotionally connect in some way Uh, so like i need to be ground i as an audience member need to be grounded in some way i struggle if i'm if i'm just sort of floating uh untethered unsure what this what the play is saying and what the story is it's being told some people can experience that let it wash over them Mm -hmm. and that's great I struggle uh, in that way. Well, I feel like this is a like this is one of the realms of theater that I don't think is as diverse as like uh, literature is. Whereas I think I think there's plenty of great novels that have that play with structure like that. 
that everyone can read and I think process. Uh, I think it's a little bit harder with theater because I feel like its background is so linear and we still produce a lot of linear stuff, but I think it's, I think it's definitely changing. And I think I haven't, I haven't read or seen uh, uh, Bob Rauschenberg America, but I mean, it sounds like that's going in that direction, right? Like it's, as we develop into the 21st century, I feel like that we might start really messing with structure like that. Yeah. His, actually, the great thing about Chuck Mee is uh, he puts every single one of his plays on his website for free. You can just oh, download awesome. it and read it. And he's got these beautiful plays, uh, Big Love, Summertime, Wintertime, True Love. He has and Bob Rauschenberg. They're all there and you can read them. And, uh, you know, I think I think some of them, it's tough to uh, imagine. Like, you need to see that. A lot of them, they're just so visual, you need to see. But, um, yeah, so I recommend to anybody, to you, to whoever's listening, that uh, check out chuckme.com or whatever, <laughs> whatever it is. I always will. I'm always <laughs> looking for new stuff to read. And if it's free, that's, like, my favorite thing. Right, exactly. It's just available. <laughs> uh all right, just sort of winding this down. Um, I know, I know you mentioned when we were we were uh, getting set up. Um, sometimes, like this, can uh, be a, a hard question to answer, and I I feel the same way because like sometimes you're like, there's so much swimming in your head. You're like, ah, oh, what do I say? But uh, are there is there any like playwrights or specific plays? I know we talked about right. We just talked about Chuck Me, but is there anyone else that you think um, at least was really inspirational for you, or that you think is just really good that you think everyone should know about? Oh uh, yeah. So uh, ever after we exchange an email about this, and uh, I started to worry. I started to panic. Worry. Uh, <laughs> here's the way. Here's the way I'll approach this. I, so like I mentioned before, I have this podcast and at the end, like, and I also am reading plays all the time. Right. What I've decided, what I decided to do several years ago on my podcast is I reserve the final moment of every episode to shout out a play that I read and, uh, and really liked. Um, and then, and then I'll blast that out through the social media networks for the for the podcast right. because because I'm trying to uh help lift up you know a player and it's it's going it's always going to be uh a play you've never heard of it's oftentimes going to be a playwright you never heard of mm-hmm. um so I've been doing that for several years so I will say to anybody just go and listen to the end of every <laughs> podcast episode I've done um uh and what I've what I'm doing uh if you're aware of New Play Exchange, um, later this month on New Play Exchange, they are putting out the list of all of the plays that I shouted out in 2022. That, oh, that's awesome. That are represented on the New Play Exchange. Um, so you'll be able to see all of them in one, in one list. And I think all but two of the plays that I shouted out are actually on, on the exchange um, so in a couple of weeks at the end of December, well, I'm not sure when this is going to come out, but at right. the end of December, uh, 2022 is when that list will be uh, published. Well, that list will exist by the time this, this is live. So that's perfect. That's so great. People, people can just go find that. Yeah, and then they, exactly. And then they'll have what, like 12 or how many? Yeah. Be? Yeah. Well, I think I, I think I had 14 or 15 episodes in 2022 and I think 11 uh are on new play exchange so the, the list is at least 11 perfect and then after that you have the rest of new play exchange which i think has like what, <laughs> 12 other yeah. plays on it so you got yeah. <laughs> and all of mine are yeah, on there. exactly so i that's what that's i was gonna ask you next uh so we mentioned um your podcast which was the subtext mm-hmm. uh and people can check that out uh we mentioned you're on new play exchange is there anywhere else that people can find your work um even if that's like locally like if just someone happens to be in madison wisconsin and you're working at a theater or something like that i'm not working at a theater at the moment i don't have i don't have any plugs for anything specific but uh i'm open to anything so read one of my <laughs> well, read one of my plays and then tell me you want to you want to do a reading of it and i will i'm i'm game <laughs> 
Perfect. I love that. Well, I really, I really hope Gravediggers Union gets picked up for a full production somewhere. Uh, it, it's a fantastic play. I really, really love it. In the future, when I can, I was, I was contemplating doing it in the summer and doing it outside so I could actually have a hole. In the ah, ground. yeah, yeah. Uh, but I mean, we'll have to see. Maybe in the future, I bet it would be great. I should throw this around to some people for Fringe. It'd be a great Fringe show, I think. So. Yeah, it's one of those plays where I realized after writing it that if your theater doesn't have a trap, <laughs> <laughs> like, how do you do this? Because it's all set around an open grave. There's a, there's another play uh, called More Fun Than Bowling uh, that I was introduced to in high school. And it has the same problem where a character buried himself alive uh, in the script and it involves like the first like seed is him like coming out of the grave. So uh, uh, it's like got the same thing, but I, you can do it outside there. Are, people are doing theater everywhere now. So there's, there's yeah. plenty of opportunities to do yeah, it. Yeah. 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 For sure. This could be a site specific piece. <laughs> do Absolutely. it in a graveyard. In an actual graveyard. Yeah. All righty. Well, thank you so much. This has been a wonderful conversation about a wonderful play. Uh, thanks for joining me today, Brian. Uh, I just can't say thanks anymore because I've already yeah. said it. Yeah. Well, thank you. I appreciate <laughs> I really appreciated uh talking about it and uh and I love that you're doing this. Hey, I love that you're also doing it too on another, on another podcast. So now there's double the there's double the new plays out there for people to check out. So that's Yeah. Great. Yeah. I'm so excited. Well, uh I'm going to say thank you one more time and then we're going to be done. So thank you, Brian. All right, thanks. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. Do yourself a favor and go check out Brian's podcast, The Subtext. And I just want to let you know that all our music was written, performed, and recorded by Devin Wessels. Our graphic design is done by Lucas Minarchek, and we're going to be taking a short break from releasing some podcasts as I get ready to start recording and releasing some more. So stay tuned in because there's a lot of great work to come. See you next time.